Hello there, and welcome to the Amateur Historian Podcast. I'm your host, Sean. In today's episode, we are on part three of our Irish War of Independence episode and the last one in our series. I am very excited to present this last little bit of evidence and say, yay, here's an independent Ireland. I'm really looking forward to it. There are a lot of names I don't know how to pronounce. So once again, I'm sorry if I say I'm wrong, but I'm going to do my best to make sure I look them up so I pronounce them right. But all right, without further ado, let's hop into this episode for part three of our Irish War of Independence. All right, so where we ended off last week is we were talking about the casualties at the very end. We're talking about how many people died and what happened and where people were getting shot and killed, particularly in Cork. Um, It's where we saw a lot of this violence breaking out. And ending off of Cork, we now get to a date after February 1st, which is where we ended. We are now going and moving on to March 19th, 1921, when Tom Barry's 100-strong West Cork IRA units fought a large-scale action against 1,200 British troops, the Crossberry Ambush. Barry's men narrowly avoided being trapped by converging British columns and inflicted between 10 and 30 men were killed on the British side. And just two days later, on March 21st, the Kerry IRA attacked a train at the Headford Junction near Killarney. At this junction... 20 British soldiers were killed or injured, as well as two IRA men and three civilians. Most of the actions in the war were on a smaller scale than this, but the IRA did have other significant victories in ambushes. For example, at Mill Street in Cork and at Scrumug in Roscommon. Also in March 1921 at Tour and Carl Kennedy in Mayo in May and June. Equally common, however, were the failed ambushes, and the worst of which, for example, at Upton and Plamon, which is also located in Cork in February 1921, saw 3-12 IRA men killed respectively, and many more were captured. The IRA and Mayo suffered a comparable reverse at Kilmeny, and fears of reformers after such ambushes and failed ambushes often led to, to a spat of IRA shootings of informers, real and imagined. The IRA in Mayo suffered a comparable reverse at Kilmina. Fears of informers after such failed ambushes often led to a spat of IRA shootings of informers. Some were real, and unfortunately, some were imagined. But right, right, right. You all are saying, look at all these British losses. The Irish weren't suffering a lot. Well, unfortunately, the biggest single loss for the IRA came in Dublin. On the 25th of May, 1921, several hundred IRA men from the Dublin Brigade occupied and burned the Custom House, aka the central location of the local government of Ireland, in the Dublin city centre. Symbolically, this was intended to show that British rule in Ireland was untenable. They couldn't hold on. However, from a military point of view, it was catastrophic in which five IRA men were killed and over 80 were captured. This showed the IRA was not well enough equipped or trained to take on the British forces in a conventional matter. Because remember, like we said, we've been doing hit and run attacks this whole time, which is what the IRA was very good at. Doing this, the stereotypical conventional warfare does not work for the IRA. However, it did not, as is sometimes claimed, cripple the IRA in Dublin. 
The Dublin Brigade carried out another 107 attacks in this city in May and 93 in June, showing a falloff in activity but not a dramatic one. However, by July 1921, most IRA units were chronically short on both weapons and ammunition. Also, for all their effectiveness at guerrilla warfare, they had, as Richard McCulley recalled, as yet not been able to drive the enemy, the British, out of anything but a fairly good-sized police barracks. So this the situation is still very dire. The IRA is starting to lack ammunition. They're starting to lack guns. They still have public support, but they cannot withhold and outlast the British if this continues for much longer. Still, despite these setbacks, many military historians have concluded that the IRA fought a largely successful and lethal guerrilla war campaign, which forced the British government to conclude that the IRA could not be defeated militarily. The failure of the British efforts to put down the guerrillas was illustrated by the events of the quote, Black Whitson. On the 13th through the 15th of May 1921, a general election for the Parliament of Southern Ireland was held on May 13th. Of course, Sinn Féin won 124 of the new Parliament's 128 seats unopposed, but its elected members refused to take their seats. Under the terms of the Government of Ireland Act, the Southern Parliament was dissolved, and Southern Ireland was to be ruled as a crown colony. Over the next two days, from May 14th to the 15th, the IRA killed 15 policemen. These events marked the complete failure of the British coalition government's Irish policy, both the failure to enforce a settlement without negotiating with Sinn Féin and a failure to defeat the IRA. So they're trying as hard as they can to have this new parliament and have this colony in Southern Ireland, not including Northern Ireland, so just the southern part, but they couldn't do it. None of the elected officials took their seats. They were like, nope, this isn't a legitimate government. Because remember, the point of the IRA and the point of the Irish population is to create their own government, their own institutions, and ignore the British government. They are saying we recognize and want to legitimize our Irish government and not the British one. So once again, this is still very powerful that these IRA members are able to still hold their ground despite how powerful the British Empire and the British military still was at this time. All right, really quickly, we got to talk about the Northeast section of Ireland. In the Government of Ireland Act that was signed in 1920, and it was enacted in December 1920, so we're going to back up for a second, the British government attempted to solve the conflict by creating two home rule parliaments in Ireland, Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. So here's where the divide is. Now we're seeing that the North and the South are being split between two different groups. While the Dáil Éireann ignored this, deeming the Irish Republic to have already been in existence, Unionists in the Northeast, so Ulster, what is today Northern Ireland, accepted it and prepared to form their own government. In this part of Ireland, which was predominantly Protestant and Unionist, Unionist is a term for people who are loyal to Britain. They are known as Unionists. They're the ones who want to stay a part of the British Empire and to stay a part of the monarchy. Whereas in the South and in the West, the conflict was between the IRA and the British forces. In the Northeast, and particularly in Belfast, it often developed into a cycle of sectarian violence between Catholics, who were largely nationalists, who wanted to be part of the Republic, and Protestants, who were mostly Unionists. So this is where we can see where the troubles the later troubles in the 1960s and 70s, that's where this stems from and that split. 
All right, we're gonna get back into the timeline and we're gonna get to spring 1921. So after a little bit of a lull in violence in the North over the new year, killings there intensified again in the spring of 1921. The Northern IRA units came under pressure from the leadership in Dublin to step up attacks in line with the rest of the country. Predictably, this unleashed loyalist reprisals against Catholics, so the Unionists started to attack Catholic groups and populations. For example, in April 1921, the IRA in Belfast shot dead two auxiliaries in Donegal Palace in Belfast city center. That same night, two Catholics were killed on the Falls Road. And we move forward a little bit to July 10th, 1921, the IRA ambushed British forces in Raglan Street in Belfast. In the following weeks, 16 Catholics were killed and 216 Catholic homes were burned in reprisal. Killings on the Loyalist side were largely carried out by the Ulster Volunteer Forces, the UVF, allegedly with the aid of the RIC police and especially the Auxiliary Police Force, the Ulster Special Constabulary, or, quote, B Specials. The Special Constabulary, set up in September 1920, was largely recruited from the Ulster Volunteer Force, the UVF, and Orange Lodges, and, in the words of historian Michael Hopkins, quote, amounted to an officially approved UVF. In May, James Craig came to Dublin to meet the British Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, Lord Fitzalan, and was smuggled by the IRA through Dublin to meet Eamon de Valere. Now, these two leaders discussed the possibility of a truce in Ulster and an amnesty for prisoners. Craig proposed a compromised settlement based on the Government of Ireland Act, which limited independence for the South and autonomy for the North within the Home Rule context. However, the talks came to nothing and violence in the North continued. Now we get to the summer of 1921 and the propaganda war. So if another feature to war, of course, is propaganda. Who can get your populace more loyal? Who can you get to switch sides? How can you bolster the morale of your people? The British tried to portray the IRA as an anti-Protestant group in order to encourage and secure the loyalists in Ireland who were Protestants and win sympathy for their harsh tactics in Britain. For example, in their communities, they would always mention the religion of spies or collaborators that the IRA had killed if the victim was a Protestant. So the British government would definitely make sure that they would show and portray the IRA as just trying to kill Protestants. Even if they were a Catholic who was killed for spying with the British, they still would not address that. They wouldn't give it, even though it was much more often occurred, much more rapidly. Now, they were also trying to give this impression in Ireland and abroad that the IRA were just slaughtering Protestants and just killing anyone who wasn't Catholic. They encouraged newspaper editors, often very forcefully, to do the same. And in the summer of 1921, a series of articles appeared in a London magazine entitled, quote, Ireland under the new terror living under martial law. While projecting this idea of being impartial to the situation in Ireland, Newspaper articles from Britain portrayed the IRA in a very unfavorable light and very negatively when compared to the British forces. In reality, the author, Ernest Dowdle, was an auxiliary and the series was one of many articles planted by the Dublin Castle Propaganda Department, which was established in August 1920 to influence public opinion in Britain against the IRA and against Irish Catholics in Northern Ireland and Ireland. In Britain, they really strongly made sure to portray the IRA as being very negative and increasingly 
hide and cover up any of the behaviors of its security forces in Ireland and was used and the newspapers were used to tote them as heroes and trying to save Ireland and to defeat these terrorists. But surprisingly, the Catholic Church hierarchy was very critical of the violence on both sides, but especially that of the IRA, continuing a long tradition of, condemn of condemning militant republicanism. The Bishop of Kilmore, Dr. Finnegan, said, quote, Any war to be just and lawful must be backed by a well-grounded hope of success. What hope of success have you against the mighty forces of the British Empire? None. None, whatever, and if it unlawful as it is, every life taken is in pursuance of it is murder. End quote. Thomas Gilmartin, the Archbishop of Tuam, issued a letter saying that IRA men who took part in ambushes, quote, have broken the truce of God, they have incurred the guilt of murder. End quote. However, in May 1921, Pope, Pope Benedict the Fifteenth dismayed the British government when he issued a letter that exonerated the, quote, English as well as Irish to calmly consider some means of mutual agreement, as they had been pushing for a condemnation of the rebellion. They declared that his comments, quote, put HMG, His Majesty's government, and the Irish murderer gang on a footholding of equality. So you can see that even the Catholic Church, there's still bishops and members of the church and clergy who are against this war and against this violence. But this propaganda war is playing out and each side is playing off of each other and each side is trying to use different sources and information and facts to sway public opinion their way. There were even in Irish bulletin papers which detailed government atrocities which Irish and British papers were unwilling or unable to cover, which unfortunately stinks. A lot of these underground newspapers were printed secretly and distributed all throughout Ireland, and it was international press agencies in America and Europe and sympathetic British politicians who also started to get these secret newspapers and they were able to present them to the public to say this is what's happening in Ireland. So it's, it's really fascinating how one can use all this evidence and all of these facts to sway people one way or the other for war or against a war. While the military war made most of Ireland ungovernable from early 1920, it did not actually remove British forces from any part of it. But the success of Sinn Féin's propaganda campaign did remove the option from the British administration to deepen the conflict. The British cabinet had not sought the war that had developed since 1919, and by 1921, one of its members Winston Churchill, that's right, we got the big man here, said, quote, what is the alternative? It was to plunge one small corner of the empire into an iron repression, which could not be carried out without an admixture of murder and countermurder. Only national self-preservation could have excused such a policy, and no reasonable man could allege that self-preservation was involved, end quote. The IRA also fought British soldiers using guerrilla tactics, like we've said over and over and over again, meaning they could quickly attack British soldiers and dip out. Now, to Irish Republicans, the Irish War of Independence had begun with the proclamation of the Irish Republic during the Easter Rising of 1919. Republicans argued that the conflict from 1919 to 1921 and 
indeed the subsequent Irish Civil War, was the defense of this republic attempts to destroy it. This war lasted from January 1919 all the way to July 1921 when a truce was finally agreed upon between the IRA and the British government. The truce allowed the IRA to regroup, recruit, and train openly. Many of their activists believed at first this was just temporary to end the hostilities. However, in December 1921, an Irish delegation led by Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith signed the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which disestablished the Irish Republic of 1919, but created the Free Irish State, an entity comprising 26 of Ireland's 32 counties, which had much more independence than the Home Rule Act of 1912, which the Home Rule Act of 1912 would have granted. Much of the Irish was unhappy with the settlement, though, and it eventually led to a civil war among nationalists from 1922 to 1923 before the new Irish free state government was established. And violence didn't totally end with the truce in the south of Ireland. British troops remained in some garrisons until the spring of 1922 and the final 6,000 soldiers did not leave until December 1922. There was a substantial number of killings of serving and former RIC personnel and some killings of civilians by the IRA, notably 13 Protestant civilians around Demanway and Cork. It is thought because they were inspected informants in April 1922. However, the major last spasm of violence was in Northern Ireland, those whose existence was confirmed under the treaty. In early 1922, both pro- and anti-treaty wings of the IRA fought a clandestine campaign against Northern Ireland, tactitiously supported by elements of the provisional free state government led by Michael Collins. This culminated in a failed IRA offensive in May 1922 in which the guerrillas fought a number of sizable engagements with British troops at the villages of Petigo and Belique, but overall failed to coordinate their actions and they were later imprisoned in large numbers by the northern government. Loyalists in a number of cases with the help of RIC and the Ulster Special Constabulary launched attacks on Catholic areas in Belfast in reprisal attacks. In one instance wiping out the male members of a Catholic family and revenge for the killing of a policeman and that family was known as McMahon. The IRA in Belfast also carried out killings of Protestants including the bombing of trams taking workers to shipyards. However, the civil war in the south that broke out in June 1922 and the northern government's introduction of wholesale inter internment led to the complete defeat of the republicans there by mid-1922. Now what are the results of this? If taken from 1917 up to mid-1922, the conflict produced within this region 2,500 deaths, give or take. Its political results were the creation of a substantially more independent Irish Free State in Northern Ireland, which remained part of the UK. The Free Irish State in later Republic was the first fully independent functional Irish state in recorded history. The memory of the War of Independence was tarnished by the subsequent Civil War, but it was openly celebrated up until the 1970s as marking the foundation of the Irish state. After the breakout of the Northern Ireland conflict in 1969, so that's when the troubles began in Northern Ireland once again, which is why, going back to the very first episode, why we were talking about riots and revolts happening within Northern Ireland, this is where the border was drawn between and the minority Catholics in the Northern Territory and the majority Protestant, and now those are starting to even out, and that's why that conflict is happening right now. Well, it was happening back then and is still happening now in some degree. Now, public memory began to become more critical with more focus on the killing of civilians, the lack of democratic endorsements from the IRA's campaign. However, since the end of the Northern Ireland conflict 
in the late 1990s, more a more positive view of 1919 through 1921 are again in the ascent in the nationalist Ireland, though aspects of it continue to be very bitterly debated. Now, in 1921, the truce was called and peace talks took place in London to try to find a way to the end of the war. Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith were among the Irish representatives at the talks. And in December 1921, the treaty was signed that would split the state. The 32 counties were split. 26 of those would go to the Irish Free State and six of them would remain within Ulster, Northern Ireland, which is still owned by Great Britain to this day. And that is where we're going to conclude today's episode and our final chapter on the Irish War of Independence. I really hope you enjoyed. Um, I was really passionate about this subject. I think it's really cool that we got to talk about public opinion, different tactics, some battles. I have, once again, so many names that I hope I didn't get too wrong. But thank you. Thank you once again for coming out. Um, we'll have a next episode out in two weeks, and I don't want to spoil it, but it's Pride Month around the world so it's gonna have something to do with that i'm really excited for that and then the week two weeks after that in july around july 4th we're gonna have a really fun episode and then two weeks after that we have another one coming up and we have guest stars for both those next episodes so keep keep an eye out on your podcasts wherever you listen to us we're everywhere so if you want to listen to us give us a review let me know how i do with my pronunciation with my editing i want to get a little bit better and add music and sounds and like little beeps here and there and get a little bit more fluent in my computer speech but where can you find me where 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 can you get a hold of me you can email me at the amateur historian podcast at gmail.com if you have any complaints about the episodes or episodes you want to suggest give me suggestions i want to hear them you can follow me on twitter at sean underscore kierce or my instagram which is at running olaf you can follow me on twitch at twitch.tv slash amateurgaming36. Come see me laugh, talk about, talk about historical topics, see me rage. It's a really good time. So please come and check me out. I'd really appreciate it. Um, once again, we're ad-free because I don't like ads. You know, hopefully we'll eventually get sponsors and get big enough for that in the future, but that's way down the road. But I can't wait to see you all soon. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Let me know what you think about it. Anyway, we will be talking next time about... Who knows? you got to listen in and find out in two weeks. All right. I'm really hyped for that next episode coming out here in a little bit. I can't wait to share it with you. Don't forget, it's never too late to learn something new. Thanks for listening, and I will see you all in two weeks. Good day, good evening, good night. We'll see you later. <laughs>